It's really awesome to see uh, the, the education wing filled with children uh, this, this past week. And um, again, uh, I, I know uh, that uh, being around that um, and, and seeing many of the kids, and kids come from all kinds of different backgrounds when they come uh, to Bible school. I think some of them were used to sitting in a church building. Some of them were not used to uh, sitting still for a very long period. Um, and, and so thank you so much uh, to, to all of you who, who helped out uh, with that time. And um, I think kids had a, had a really good time. Uh, I think they learned some valuable lessons about who Jesus is and uh, the way Jesus uh, is inviting uh, to all of us. And we're going to be talking a little bit uh, about that uh, here this morning. Uh, we've been kind of going through a, a series here that I've called uh, Bare Essentials. And these are some of the values that kind of undergird uh, who we are um, and our approach to faith and, and uh, life as followers of Jesus here at Spring Creek. Um, it's interesting that many in our Spring Creek family have come from uh, maybe other Christian traditions, uh, maybe from no uh, kind of formal faith background, um, and some of you have been lifelong participants or um, very long-time participants here at, at Spring Creek, and so we just kind of wanted to touch base on what are some of the, the foundations to how we attempt to uh, follow Jesus in our lives. Uh, you know, as a, as a pastor, I sometimes get asked, what kind of church are you? Um, some many folks, when I say I'm you know, Church of the Brethren, they say, "Well, like, what is that? What does that mean? Uh, what What do you? Who are you? What do you uh, believe?" Um, I had someone a couple of months ago who who came into the office for for um, something. Uh, I, they ended up here. Um, coincidence? Um, I, I'm not sure, uh, but they said so. Church of the Brethren, what is that? And I had no frame of reference for like what kind of spiritual background they, they were. I didn't know if they had any kind of faith commitment, if they were familiar with Christian, Christian traditions of any kind. And, uh, you know, so my answer was something like, um, well, we're a group of people that takes the, the life teachings uh, death and resurrection of Jesus, and we try and take that very seriously uh, for who we are. Um, I, I think I used the word Anabaptist, but uh, it was clear that they didn't really have a frame of reference for what that meant. Um, and, you know, I try to avoid, but sometimes, you, well, have you heard of the Mennonites? We're kind of like the Mennonites, but we're kind of not like the Mennonites. Um, and, and so we try and have, give voice to uh, kind of who we are. I, I've been asked, is your church evangelical? And I go, well, how do you mean that? Um, like political evangelicals that get reported as a voting block of people. Um, that's not how I would call us. Um, we're part of a tradition that goes back before that label was, was used as it is today. Um, and yes, we believe in the, the good news of Jesus. We believe in his um, atoning death. We believe in the, in the resurrection. Uh, we believe the, the life and teachings of Jesus help direct the way that we are called to live and interact with the world. I've also been used, and some of these words mean something to some of you and some of them don't. Um, is your church mainline? 
And, and I gotta be honest, that's a word that I'm not real familiar with. Um, I think I know what you mean. Uh, you mean like, are we like Presbyterian and, and Lutheran and Methodist? Uh, um, yes and no. Um, some parts of our faith, some parts of our practice have been heavily influenced by those groups. Some of our liturgy, some of our songs, um, some of our prayers are shared very much in common with people in other Christian traditions. Um, another way that Spring Creek might be influenced by uh, those mainline traditions is uh, the architecture of the space that we're in right now. We have what's called a split chancel. Um, so we have a lectern over here, and although we don't really use it anymore, we have a pulpit over here. That is a mainline thing. Um, now you know. Um, I was having a conversation with um, uh, another pastor, Church of the Brethren pastor, uh, this past week, and, and something of this kind of uh, came up, and, and he said, well, you know, when a lot of churches churches of the brethren in this area were being renovated in, in the late 30s through kind of the uh, 50s and into the 60s, um, the primary architect who was on retainer for the Church of the Brethren was a Lutheran. Um, so a lot of the architecture of buildings that were uh, remodeled at that time kind of have some of that influence. That doesn't really have a lot of bearing on where we're going with the sermon this morning, um, but a little bit of background information. As we're talking about our anniversary year, a uh, little bit of extra uh, information for you this morning. We do try to be a, a group of Christ followers who, like I said, attempt to take seriously the total life, teachings, death, and resurrection of Jesus. Uh, we believe that the community of faith is central to uh, our life and to our practice of faith. And we believe that reconciliation or um, uh, wholeness, or the biblical word is shalom, uh, is, is central to what we are called to do in our life and our ministry together. And so over the last couple of weeks, we've looked at how Jesus is the center of our faith, community is the center of our life, and reconciliation is the center of our work. And so we've looked at how Jesus as the center of our faith means the Christian faith is primarily about discipleship or uh, apprenticing to be like Jesus. Uh, just as you might uh, apprentice a trade and you might go with a master craftsman or a master plumber, master mason, master whatever, um, we believe that we're called to walk in the footsteps of the master, learning to be like and to do things like Jesus did. We believe that this life includes confession and repentance and continuing in that in an ongoing basis and through the power of the Holy Spirit. And we attempt to understand the scriptures through the lens of the word of God who is Jesus. We talked about that last week, how we primarily see the word of God as Jesus who came and took on flesh and, and showed us what God is like. This morning, we're going to be taking a look at the phrase, Jesus is Lord. As we do that, would you pray with me? 
Jesus, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be pleasing to you, O Lord. Would you speak through me or despite me? In Jesus' name, amen. This scripture that was read for us this morning, Philippians uh, 2, 5 to 11, um, it's, a, it's a familiar passage to many of us. We, we, we've heard it uh, many times. Um, it is possible that this is a hymn from the early church, that um, the, 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 the very early New Testament church may have sung these words as a, as a declaration uh, of their faith and what they believed about who Jesus is is. It's a beautiful summary of both the humanity and the divinity of Jesus, that Jesus is one essence, one with God, that Jesus emptied himself taking on the identity of a human being, that he became obedient to the point of death, even the humiliation of death on a cross, not just any kind of death, but a very public, humiliating death that Jesus died, humbled, emptied, died, and yet raised, exalted, and glorified, such that all humanity will recognize the kingship of Jesus one day, we believe, when every tongue should confess, that is, to announce, to declare that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. It's kind of where this hymn, this ancient um, hymn, is pointing us. What does it mean for Jesus Christ to be Lord? In the church, sometimes we get uh, too used to words that we start to forget uh, the meaning. I don't know if you've ever done that where you just keep repeating a word and pretty soon you go, I don't even know what that word means anymore. I think sometimes we do that in the church and we say, Jesus is Lord, Jesus is Lord, Jesus is Lord, Jesus is Lord, Jesus is Lord. We say it all the time. But do we know what that word Lord means? What it implies for our faith and for our life together? We say we accept Jesus as Savior and Lord. I think sometimes everyone wants a Savior, but I'm not sure that anyone wants a Lord when we come down to it. That's part of our human story from, you know, like the third chapter of the Bible is humanity deciding, you know what, God, I know you, uh, I know you just created everything. We got it from here. And we're going to do things our own way. And so Adam and Eve decide that they're going to define good and evil for themselves rather than allowing God to, to define good for them. Uh, one of my boys uh, a couple of weeks ago um, asked, asked, you know, what if Adam and Eve wouldn't have eaten the fruit? Would they still be alive today? My response was no. No because they'd have goofed it up somewhere else. And we would have goofed it up somewhere else. If it didn't happen there, it would have happened along the line because I think what we see throughout Scripture, what we see throughout history, is we consistently choose to do things our own, to be obedient 
to self. I think that's one of the the primary things that we share as human beings is that we primarily want to be obedient to self. It's that problem from the very beginning. Both with Adam and Eve, uh, through humanity and civilization as it develops we see in, in the early uh, stories of, of Genesis that humanity and civilization attempt to reach heaven through their own effort in the Tower of Babel. People define good and evil for themselves, uh, building to the flood. Again, they're trying to do, thing, do things on their own. Everybody did what was right in their own eyes. Everybody's def- deciding good and evil for themselves. Abram, even after the flood, tries to force the covenant of having children through his own scheme. David, a man after God's own heart, does things his own way, uh, and, and he takes Bathsheba. Humans are constantly trying to be obedient only to self. I'm going to be true to who? Myself. Maybe that works for you. Honestly, I'm not sure I would want to be the standard uh, for what is right and what is wrong and what is true and what is false. Society-wise, how does that begin to work out to be true to yourself when there's 8 billion human beings who are all being obedient to themselves? So I think Oftentimes, that's kind of our, um, that's our starting point. We want to be obedient to self. Well, what we see is God uh, begins to allow uh, civilization to develop authority structures. Instead of, you know, all these people deciding what's good and right for themselves, society uh, begins to develop, civilization begins to develop authority structures. And then we talk about those ordained authorities, those that are kings, those that are governors, those that are rulers, excuse me, they help to give structure to society and to maintain some kind of order so that there's just not chaos uh, uh, across the world. When you've got all these people defining good and evil for themselves, it seems like it's probably a good thing to, to limit the chaos for there to be some kind of authority structure that says, uh, we're going to put some rules down. And that's uh, Hammurabi, right? You know, the code of Hammurabi and um, uh, the, the, the commandments that, that come that, that helps to define uh, the, the laws uh, for Israel. Uh, societies start to develop these codes and then say, you know, we're going to decide that these are, this is what's right and this is what's wrong in our society. And God allows these uh, structures to develop, these ordained authorities. Some Christians interpret uh, God's uh, ordaining authority as an ordering of authority, that God knows uh, the order of which rulers will come and go. And these 
ordained authorities are God's concession in the face of humanity that tends to be very self-seeking. God allows them uh, to develop when it's clear that humanity is not going to just decide to follow what God wants. In fact, we see that uh, in, in, in the biblical story. It's highlighted when Israel uh, demands to have a human king and they reject God as their king and Yahweh concedes. It's not primarily what God wants. He wants them to be in relationship with him for, for them to find uh, good and evil defined by God. But Israel... And, you know, pretty much everyone else said, no, we want a king. We want, we want a ruler. <clears throat> so Yahweh concedes. He tells the Israelites the consequences, but the Israelites say, yeah, bring on the king. Everyone else is doing it. We want one too. Now, when we talk about ordained authority, those authority structures in our world, and you know, for us, it's a, it's a democrat, democratically elected, ordained earthly authority. Um, other places, at other times in human history, it's been other types of uh, ordained authority. When we talk about these ordained authorities, we start to enter into a whole ethical dilemma. How do we act? How do we interact with those ordained authorities? What is legitimate authority? Is a dictator legitimate authority? Is a king a legitimate authority? How about democratically elected authorities? What happens if you think that that election was rigged? Is it only ordained authority if that authority agrees with my version of politics? What does it mean for us to be obedient to ordained earthly authority? Paul instructs some early Christians to pray for the emperor and to obey the emperor and the governors. Paul seems to allow for a role for the government to use the sword in maintaining order, although uh, I would say he seems to indicate that this might not be the role of followers of Jesus. Paul himself has a, a complicated relationship with those ordained authorities because Paul doesn't always comply with how those uh, in authority want him to comply. They tell him to stop preaching doesn't stop preaching uh, you, you know so Paul has kind of he says you know obey obey the emperor and he does but he's going to do it in a Christ honoring way it's a complicated uh, relationship remember we talked last week about how we uh, read scripture through a Jesus-colored lens. So how did Jesus obey the ordained authority? Did Jesus fall in line with everything that the ordained authority wanted him to? I'd say no, yes. Did Jesus submit to the ordained authority? Yes, in a radical way. He refused to use violence to fight the authority that came to arrest him. In fact, he even uh, rebuked Peter when Peter attempted to use violence to defend Jesus. 
Jesus refused to call for heavenly, <coughs> excuse me, Jesus refused to call for heavenly backup when he could have. In fact, he tells Pilate, you know, I could call down a legion of angels. We could end this, end this conversation like that. We're part of a tradition <clears throat> with a, a complicated relationship with ordained authority. Some folks practice uh, something called two-kingdom uh, theology or two-kingdom system where we, in our, in our private life, in our faith life, in our spiritual life, we obey God. But in our public life, in the way that we interact with the world around us, we uh, obey the ordained authorities. And we're part of a group of people that have said, uh, no, we're going to follow Jesus. Our, our ultimate allegiance, our ultimate authority is Jesus. We'll cooperate with those ordained authorities as much as we can, in ways that we can, but we're not going to confuse the two. When, when this group of radical reformers that we've kind of been talking about, the, the Anabaptists, when they began to emerge it was really cloudy on whether the church was calling, telling people to do things or whether uh, the governing authority was telling people to do things. Because when the king spoke, the king told you he was speaking in the name of God. And when the governor spoke, uh, the, the governor was speaking in the name of God. And city councils decided, you know all of the, the rules and regulations for the city, but they also determined matters of faith. And so uh, they would have these arguments, these city council meetings that were about issues of faith. And the radical reformers said, you know what, we don't think this is right. They believed that they were called to have an allegiance to God. That Jesus is Lord meant more than just my private spiritual life. But the way that we interact with the world around us is to be obedient to Jesus. So we move from being obedient to self to obedient to ordained authority towards obedience to Jesus Christ. I said earlier, I think everyone wants a savior. We want to be rescued, rescued from our own messes, rescued from the, the mess of the world around us, rescued from um, things that other people have done to us, uh, rescued from the messes of society. But we struggle more, I think, with what does it mean to follow Jesus as Lord? The Greek word there is Kyrios, Lord, in ancient Rome. It was a word that could refer to any kind of Lord or master, king or emperor. There's an interesting um, inscription that was found in 6 BC in Asia Minor. And this is what the, the ancient Roman world declared. They said, the most divine Caesar... 
we should consider equal to the beginning of all things. For when everything was falling into disorder and tending toward dissolution, he restored it once more and gave the whole world a new aura. Caesar, the common good fortune of all, the beginning of life and vitality, all the cities unanimously adopt the birthday of the divine Caesar as the new beginning of the year. Whereas the providence which has regulated our whole existence, has brought our life to the climax of perfection in giving to us the emperor, Augustus, who being sent to us and our descendants as savior, has put an end to war and has set all things in order, and whereas having become God manifest, Caesar, has fulfilled all the hopes of earlier times. The birthday of the god Augustus has been for the whole world the beginning of good news. Euangelion concerning him. I love to read that inscription because it highlights the subversive nature of the followers of Jesus who used very much the same kind of language to declare someone else was Lord. That Jesus was Lord. They used that same word, euangelion, good news. But this was a different kind of good news. They believed that Jesus, a rabbi, Jewish rabbi, born in a backwater area of the, the empire, they believed he was Lord, that he was God incarnate. And that in him, good news was being uh, revealed and made manifest in the world around us. So Jesus is Lord was a radical statement for the early Christians. Caesar is not ultimately Lord. Pilate is not ultimately Lord. The radical reformers would say, you know what? The king of the, the Holy Roman Empire is not ultimately Lord. The city council of Zurich is not ultimately Lord. The president is not Lord. Jesus is Lord. And it's to Him that we give our obedience. Again, I recognize obedience can be a tough word today. It's tough for us to hear that. But here's what Jesus says. The Lord Jesus says, Take my yoke, take my teaching on you. For my burden or the things that I will ask from you are uncomplicated Rabbis at the time of Jesus had complex systems of expected behaviors. The Pharisees had all kinds of things that they expected uh, the, the followers, their followers uh, to adopt. 
different rituals for washing and expectations for the Sabbath and, you know, all kinds of rules. Jesus says two things. Love God with your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. Most of Jesus' teaching and action is giving flesh to those two things. Love God and love your neighbor. And people would say, who's my neighbor? And Jesus would tell a story. And Jesus would demonstrate. And Jesus would show how you love God and how you love your neighbor. One of the things that got the early radical reformer Anabaptists in trouble was their complete commitment to Jesus as Lord. Not just a a spiritual Lord for personal, privatized faith, personal, privatized piety, but a Lord and a King over the personal and the privatized, as well as the communal and the corporate. And so we have stories like John Noss, who refused to serve in the prince's bodyguard because he said, I already serve the Prince of Heaven. They were committed to see Jesus as Lord over every area of their life. What they did behind closed doors over uh, their their time of opening up Scripture together and, and, and their Bible study, but also over the way that they lived their lives out in public. Their jobs, their careers, their families, the way they interacted with society around them. Jesus was Lord over that as well. Not the Holy Roman Emperor, not the Prince, not the Governor, not the City Councils. They didn't have equal dual allegiances. Yes, they obeyed and cooperated with civil authorities as much as possible, but there was no confusion about where their allegiance ultimately was. Friends, you and I, we desperately need a Savior. We need a Savior because ultimately we want to be obedient only to ourselves. And we can make a mess of things. We need a Savior. And when things are broken, uh, broken uh, around us uh, because of something that we've done, because of something uh, someone else has done, because of the, the mess of society, um, because of things just falling apart around us, I think deep within us we understand and we want a Savior. No one wants a Lord. And yet, that's what Jesus invites us to. To align ourselves with the King of the universe. To take on the teachings of Yeshua bar Yosef. Jesus, to give our amen to the the hymn of Philippians 2, that every knee shall bow, every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. 
And so this is the invitation we invite people to participate in. That Jesus died in the place of sinful humanity, an atoning death to put to rights that which was broken. A free gift of God's grace and mercy, not because of anything that you have done right, but because of what Jesus has done. And in response to the free gift Jesus has shown us and taught us the ways to live. We are called to obedience to the one true and rightful king of the universe who reigns through self-sacrificial love, giving himself up. Again, not because of anything that you or I have done this free gift. And we respond by calling Jesus Savior. And that, I think sometimes that tougher word, Lord. The Lord who lays down his life rather than taking life. I don't know what's happening in each of your lives, um, but I do want to give opportunity this morning. If things are falling apart and you know deep within you, I need a savior, Jesus is the one that makes it right. Jesus is the one who puts, can put it back together who can bring a wholeness to life. But we believe also that Jesus is Lord. And our response to Jesus as Savior is to also say, Jesus, you are Lord to submit, to obey, as hard as that is. And each of us that have said Jesus is Savior and Lord, who, who have been baptized, we continue to struggle with that Lord part, truth be told, because we all want to revert to doing things our own way. So it's a practice to confess and to repent and to strive to make Jesus Lord in our lives. If you want to... Uh, want prayer this morning for Jesus uh, to be Savior and Lord. I'm going to remain up here at the front, and I'd love to have conversation with you and, and, and pray with you as well. Um, for the rest of us, I'm going to invite you to uh, stand in body or spirit uh, to turn in the blue hymnal to number 285 as we sing, All Hail the Power of Jesus' Name. Would you stand?